Welcome to the Adversity Psychologist podcast, a podcast incorporating narratives about facing and navigating adversity, a mixture of people, their experiences and professional psychological discussion. I'm Dr. Tara Quintarillo. I'm a qualified and regulated psychologist with over 20 years experience of mental health, disability and human behaviour. I want to share people's stories of navigating adversity in the hope that through being heard, a dose of compassion and some understanding, we can help others in the face of adversity too. Hi and welcome to this episode of the Adversity Psychologist podcast. I am so delighted to have with me today Becca Caddy. I would like to hand over to her to introduce herself because I don't do justice to people when I do. So (laughs) hello Becca and welcome. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Hello, so I'm Becca. Um, I'm a tech and science journalist and an author now as well. A book I wrote in during the pandemic actually came out last year and it's called Screen Time. It's all about kind of finding a healthier balance with the tech we use every day. As a journalist, I do a lot of writing online, some print as well. And I'm just really fascinated by technology and new developments and what's coming next in the future. So yeah, that's me in a nutshell. It's so lovely to have you. So I hope it's right to say, so we connected a couple of years ago, didn't Mm. we, when I did some writing for you and I have devoured your book. And (laughs) I know at times my relationship with my phone particularly can verge on unhealthy and has done. So I've learned so much from your book. So we'll tell people a little bit more at the end about how they can find out how to find a copy of that and learn more because I think we can all take something away from our relationship with our devices and screens. So the reason that we have you on today is that you have an interesting backstory. We connect quite a lot, don't we, over social media? And I think it's yes. just really lovely to meet people that I've connected with over social media and have a conversation with them over yeah. a face-to-face video call. It's really lovely as well. Tell us a little bit about your past and what it is that you know drew you to coming on to the podcast today. Yeah, so... I guess we'll get more into kind of specifics and diagnosis and things in a minute. Before I came on here, I was kind of thinking about it and thinking about what my kind of story has been up until now. And I kept thinking of like imagery of a constellation. So as in like each star is like a different mental health challenge or diagnosis. And then all together, the constellation is me. I just yes, really like that I imagery. That. Yes. <laughs> and then um, I think what kind of what connects everything if I were to kind of really kind of crystallize it and think, what, what have I struggled with? I'd say that it's intensity and it's feeling very odd. So a lot of black and white in my life. So extremely happy and elated. And then half an hour later, really sad and despairing. And that kind of intensity from one side to another is present in pretty much everything, (laughs) everything in my life. And I think always has been. So, you know, anything from extremely energetic to extremely exhausted, either focusing completely or not at all. And even specifics, you know, uh, we'll talk about it probably in a bit, but um, with eating, you know, fasting and not eating or binging, you know, even, even social situations, like wanting to be around people and then just feeling so shy and can barely talk around people so I could say more examples but that that's I I think that's kind of that's been my biggest struggle and and you know I think it's worth pointing out that obviously feeling lots of different states is just normal it's part of the human experience right but for me the challenge is how intense it is how quickly I move between them and how little I seem to occupy that gray area in the middle I mean you know having having learned more about this over the years it's it's kind of I find it difficult to regulate 
anything. (laughs) So I think, uh, so I kind of wanted to start by saying all that because I think that really sums up a lot of what I've struggled with. And it makes sense when we talk about kind of specific um, diagnosis as well. Yes. Yeah. So when we kind of think about observations we have about ourselves, about the human condition, what was it that made you think this is something I'd like to talk more about with professionals and to understand more about was there anything that made you think let's look at this more on Um, a clinical level I think I think I've had the thought that I should look at things more so I'm 35 now and I think when I was 18 so when I just started university um the and I and I guess it's probably to do with the shock of kind of going to university that was when I first thought that everything was just really I can't think of a better word other than exhausting living between these really intense states and I think I had a lot of I I struggled a lot when I was a child and a teen as well but I think having a support network of living with my family and I'm from a, a very small town where you know there are good and bad things about that but I had I had quite a strong support network of friends and I think yeah although there were struggles there was something about going to university that just felt so huge (laughs) right and that's when I first sought out a therapist at university actually yeah and are you comfortable sharing what were their thoughts on what you've been going through what were their thoughts on your own observations about how you were feeling how you behave so I'll be really honest um that experience wasn't great and I think it's because looking back now I kind of just wasn't really ready to think about things you know comparing comparing what it was like to talk to a therapist at 18 compared to when um I spoke to a therapist when I was 25 I think uh, was the next time um I just wasn't ready to kind of talk about anything or confront anything so I'm just thinking about what a difficult (laughs) how difficult it must have been to be on the well to be on both sides but you know I remember the therapist saying to me what someone said to me again in my late 20s, which was, I think we need to address eating problems because I I think, you know, I've said that everything moves between intensities and I don't think the core of all these problems is eating, but I think it's a really obvious one that is an issue. And I think when we're talking about, you know, other things I mentioned earlier, like focus, attention, how sociable I feel. They're not all connected to eating, but if I'm fasting and not eating for long periods, those things are going to be even more dysregulated. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So it's looking at that, what we call that formulation that you notice when you're in a certain mm. state, when you're regulating your eating, that then other areas of your life are more difficult, other emotions yes. may be more difficult to manage, yes. that there yes. may be different behavioral responses. And what do we know about cognition and things that affect it? What we put into our body, how hydrated, how nourished we are, does impact our cognition, our attention, our concentration, memory. Yes, you know, massively, massively. And so, so, you know, looking back now, it really makes sense why that's been kind of the first port of call a few times in my life, because I don't believe it's the core of everything, but it really does impact everything. And it's a very obvious example of, of black and white thinking that's how kind of therapy went when I was in university I was again very briefly because I wasn't I wasn't ready I don't think to confront things but I was in a kind of eating disorder therapy group at university 
but I think maybe only for four weeks and I just stopped going. <laughs> so yeah, I, you know, looking back, I sometimes there's a lot of judgment there. Like, oh, if only I'd have addressed these things a bit earlier, because there was a great opportunity. But you know what, I, I really try and just accept that I wasn't, for whatever reason, I wasn't ready to. Absolutely. To, yeah. That's why I'm so interested in this narrative, because I'm just wondering how many people maybe listen to this podcast who may notice things. And sometimes we notice things and we avoid as part of the human condition isn't it mm. but also there's something so important about being ready to look at things and it being the yes. right time and quite often as a psychologist I get asked when is the right time and I had to write something recently for a project I'm on about you know how, how can we let people understand a bit more about when's the right time to access therapy yeah. or psychology and there's no magic answer but I think timing's important sometimes we know when it's not the right time and it's so interesting isn't it because what you were just saying there as well is that you know as you've gone through your lifespan you've noticed that some of that guilt showing up yes and and the kind of sometimes we want to fast, you know, or rewind, sorry, back to the past again, don't we? We yeah. want to rewind to the past to maybe redo things. And actually when you look at it now, what what were you ready for at you know at that time of your life compared to now? And what stage of your life did you get to where you begun to understand a little bit more about the things you'd noticed in terms of your attention and your, your cognition? Much later. but because I think I think I'd been told probably before 18, actually, by a doctor that what I was struggling with was depression and anxiety right. based. And, and, you know, I've actually had some great GPs over the years. So I don't I don't want to say anything negative about GPs. But I think it was very much just I answered four questions. And therefore, I was I had depression and anxiety, right. which, you know, so that's something I kind of I think I maybe was around 16, 15, 16. But again, didn't really engage with it much. Thinking back to when I was a kid or a teen, so many people would make fun of me for crying very easily and for being quite dramatic and then being fine the next minute, things like that. So I can actually trace back a lot of things to childhood and my teens. And but kind of just I, I always knew I was a little bit something was a little bit different about me. But I think the kind of back to kind of your, your question about kind of memory and cognition, I think I'd always done very well in school. So I'd never really questioned things like that. It was more just I saw myself as a very emotional person. Right. <laughs> and I think I've been very lucky, actually, that I've pursued things and managed to excel in things that have really interested me. So sometimes the issues with kind of memory and attention have shown up in things that don't interest me. Yeah, and that's a good and, point. Yeah. And so it's been really uh, like my, my current job is actually a great example that, you know, I think like everyone, I have issues with kind of like um, attention and focus day to day. But because fundamentally what I do is really interesting to me. There is yeah. something, isn't there, there about when we look at things like hyperfocus, for example, is there something in what you're saying about maybe it not being problematic when there are specific things you observe about your cognitive profile, paying attention, concentration, yeah. because of what you do? and what you enjoy does it allow you to be able to work efficiently even when some of those things show up yeah I think it really does and I think you know I guess we'll we'll, we'll talk more specifically about kind of ADHD in a minute but something that really struck me the other day that I heard on a podcast was thinking of attention not as a with ADHD not as a deficit but as kind of a dysregulation so you'll notice periods of kind of hyper focus and I, I really right. have and yeah and yeah as I said, I think I think I've been very lucky that I did um, I did an English degree, and 
getting lost in fiction, escaping into fiction is one of the things I enjoy the most and brings me so much joy even like throughout my life, especially today. Yeah, yeah. So being able to do that was has had huge benefits. And now writing about tech and science, things that just interest me so much. I think I'm driven often by that curiosity and yes. interest. Yes. And being able to focus on it. Like um I've had a lot of people ask me like, how did you write a book in the pandemic? <laughs> and I think it was just I find so much again like pleasure and I guess flow I don't know if I always love that word but flow by just having the book to focus on for like six or seven months was the so weird to say because it was awful time and really difficult in so many ways but being able to focus solely on writing and only doing that one thing was really pleasurable as well how interesting Um, yes yeah Yeah. it's so interesting I was just going to pick up on something you said there that yeah I wonder whether sometimes when we notice things that the pandemic has allowed or Mm. we've discovered during the pandemic whether there's that little bit of guilt that shows up because you know when we think of the pandemic as a whole such a difficult time yeah you know, people grieving coping with loss change and there have been within that things that people discovered about themselves and it's just so yeah. interesting actually you're not alone there I don't think in yeah some of those thoughts and actually for you that time allowed you to focus on this book and it and yeah. it allowed you to 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 focus in a way that actually might have been quite productive for you by the sounds of it as well yeah it it really was and you know and it's that thing of realizing I live in a very small studio flat with my boyfriend so you know elements of the pandemic were really difficult from a space kind of point of view but then having something to focus on really helped me actually not kind of spiral during that time because I just couldn't really be distracted because I had so much to focus on and it was so interesting to me. It's what I'd always wanted to do. But yeah, you're right. Even talking about it now, I feel like a little bit of kind of guilt showing up. And as I said, even though, you know, things weren't ideal for me during the pandemic, I lost some extended family and live in a very tiny flat, which wasn't easy. But at the same time, you know, knowing that me and my boyfriend could work from home and we didn't have to put ourselves kind of in danger by traveling every day or anything like that so kind of feeling feeling lucky but feeling a bit of guilt it's it's very yeah it's a very weird mix of emotions thinking back now even though we're only you know I mean cases are rising again but even though we're only just kind of out of things you know it's it's a it's a strange time even to say out of the pandemic because yeah <laughs> it is I was just talking to somebody this morning actually and what is there a, a descriptor for what phase we're in at the moment yeah you know when we're talking about it but it, you know so not only were you dealing with some what we call baseline issues things you'd noticed about you your neurology how you cope your emotions then we had a pandemic on top of that which really allowed you actually some time to focus on something really valued and I I got a lot from your book I get a lot from your style of writing that really worked well for me you know quite often sometimes I read things and think this is going to give me good advice but I struggle with the way information is presented and, yeah and I'm just wondering you know is that for me that's very you when I read um you know we'll, we'll let people know a bit more about what you do at the end but you know when I read articles that you write and even just you, your social media posts I'm, I'm just very struck about how accessible your language is for people and I'm just wondering whether you know as part of your journey and what you've been through whether that's kind of helped you arrive at the person you are today and how you write and, and just looking at all the barriers that you've had to overcome and face in order 
to be where you are now and doing all the great things that you're doing yeah um I never thought of it like that and it's yeah it's great to hear that you like the way I write um yeah it's funny it's funny as a writer because um and I'm not saying this in a really self-deprecating way I don't think I'm the best writer out there I don't think I'm a fantastic writer I think what I am is I'm really curious and I yeah like you say I, I like to just write in a very clear accessible way so I think about about seven years ago, I was in Thailand and I was on a bit of a like retreat. It was a little bit like woo woo now looking back. Um, <laughs> but at one point, everyone had to kind of sit and like crystallize like their life purpose or something like that. And I remember rolling my eyes a bit because I'd been dragged along a little bit to this to this retreat. And um, it was actually a really great part of it because I, I think it sounded much better and more poetic. But my kind of purpose, I realized, was like creating. I think it was like creating things that people find like informative or inspirational. I think it was something like that. And, you know, it was really, really interesting practice because everyone else there had such a different purpose when they kind of sat down and thought about it. And um, and so, yeah, I think it really, um, it really motivates me to think that, you know, sometimes I am writing about like a new TV or, you know, just normal kind of tech journalism, which is great, but it's not what lights me up as much as things like, a piece I always love was about um, how to recreate like the overview effect that people get when they look at the Earth from space. Uh, astronauts have spoken about how to recreate that like on, on Earth with maybe like virtual reality, things like that. So it's those kind of really meaty pieces that are about tech, they're about the future, but they're also quite awe-inspiring and I hope like mean something to people, you know, yes. that's what's really, yeah. yeah. I'm only trying to wrap words around it because I've never really tried to crystallize it quite so much, but it's, it, yeah, it's that it's, it's writing stuff that, that people can understand, but also kind of plants a bit of seed of, of awe and wonder or excitement for the future as well. Absolutely. Because one of the things I've learned about you recently is that you have quite a love for space, don't you? Yes. Yeah. Um, I've always absolutely loved anything to do with space. And I remember as a child going to visit the Kennedy Space Center and just oh, wow. being in awe and, you know, getting up super early for a launch and then the launch being cancelled. And, and, and soon if wow. I connect with you, because I sometimes I can see your personal passion coming through and you're really, I think you're very honest and open about, you know, when you're writing pieces, which ones perhaps have more personal meaning for you and stories. Yes. Tell us a little bit about how did ADHD come into your life? Then? So when we're looking at where you are now and what you observe through kind of childhood and adolescence and in those days at uni, at what, what point in your life did the word ADHD coming for you yeah okay so really really late I, I maybe talk a little bit about, about eating as well because it's kind of all part of the journey yes. yeah so yeah so for a long time after I guess after that first experience at university when I had some therapy and then throughout my 20s I had a bit of kind of um, CBT I had another therapist and the, the question of like what I was dealing with never really came up much. It was just anxiety and mood swings, I guess. And it wasn't until my late 20s, actually, that I was talking to a GP and she said, I really think we need to, to tackle eating first. And um, the, the thing about eating with me is I go through um, stages of things being OK and then things really, really not being OK. So it's, that's great because it means for periods of my life I haven't had problems but at the same time it also means that it's really hard to seek help because I'll think 
I really need to talk to someone about this. And then next day I'll be like, oh no, I don't, everything's fine. And it just kind of goes up and down and up and down like that. I wonder how many people (laughs) have had that and that will resonate with, yeah. Yeah. In terms of sometimes there's a bit of a journey to actually get to see someone, you know, there's a difference even between booking an appointment and actually getting through that door or that virtual door. Yes. You're so right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, that particular GP, I remember feeling like she was quite kind of brusque and like not interested. But actually, I'm so extremely grateful that she said that because that was then, I think we're maybe talking about when I was 28. I'm not sure, late 20s. And that was when I was put through kind of the NHS program of being officially diagnosed. Um, So I was diagnosed with bulimia. And then I was put on a group therapy kind of program. Right. Yeah. So overall, I think that took about a year, but I've since found out that that was very, very quick. And I was just very, very lucky that there was a spot on a a spot on a group program. Right. um, Which I was so wary about at first. Um, And I remember being told that like, you know, like me thinking a bit kind of cynically that it's kind of to save money, just puts all in a room. But I remember the psychologist saying, you know, so much so many problems with eating like thrive on shame so if we're all in the room together we all know we're going through it we're all talking about it each week just that act of doing that can be really transformative in itself yes, yeah yeah and I remember being quite skeptical about that but I really you know having gone through it that's I yeah wholeheartedly believe that <laughs> absolutely that guilt initially there sometimes underneath that can be shame and shame is yeah. more of a kind of a, a global concept. So, you know, we might yes. think that we have guilt about a particular thing, but perhaps underneath that, there can be deeper level mm. shame. And it's so interesting. I'm wondering again, just people listening, how many people might find talking and talking in public about things, talking yeah. in groups, a barrier. But actually, it's a really helpful thing. Yeah. Overcoming and- those barriers, normalizing conversations, dealing with that guilt and that shame. Yeah. And, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's interesting you say that because even within the group, each week there was someone who, like, we'd all been officially diagnosed, right? There was no question of, of why we were there. Each week, at least one person would be like, I don't think I should be here. Like, I feel like I'm taking someone else's spot. Maybe my problems aren't that bad, you know? So even within the, so that we were all dealing with feelings of guilt and shame, I think, but then it came out really obviously like that, people feeling like they were taking someone else's spot even so yeah and that's and, interesting in itself yeah. so in terms of what you took away from that you know that what happened to your feelings of guilt and shame is that all right to ask did you notice? yeah it just really normalized it now I've had I have had problems with eating since I was extremely young and looking back now I think it was to manage kind of emotions, manage the up and downs. But also I think, I have to go a bit graphic here, but um, um, throwing up was a reaction to overwhelm, I think. Yes. Yeah. Sensory overwhelm. you say that, yeah. Yeah, sensory overwhelm, but also kind of emotional overwhelm. And that's something I've only really, um, yeah, looked at in my, you know, in the past five or six years. So that was kind of a coping mechanism from quite a young age. But again, not often. So it didn't feel like something that was this. So looking back, you know, and saying that out loud now, it's like, whoa, that's, you know, that's, that's, that's a big deal. It didn't feel like it at the time because it wasn't all the time. But, but, but yes, yeah, so I'd had a lot of problems with eating and always shrugged them off a little bit because I want to speak on behalf of anyone. But I, you know, there, there are very few people, especially women I've met in my life who haven't had some element of kind of disordered eating, I think, you know, not 
an eating disorder, but kind of problems. So I kind of just shrugged it off as all part of that. But the therapy, what the group therapy was, was incredible. Yeah, yeah. Not only for the sheer act of going each week, which felt like an achievement in itself, but you know, some of the things, some of the things we'd learn might sound really obvious, you know, about like how many carbs you're meant to have a day and what that looks like on the plate. So you'd have to measure them out. Like it's really obvious stuff. But then there were some things like scheduling your eating times, which again sounds really obvious, but I can't believe how I never if I were if I were to just live a normal day, I would not eat properly at all like to a schedule in terms of frequency yeah I'd eat like nothing till four and then loads or I'd eat a little bit of breakfast one day and then nothing else or then I'd have a completely normal day and it would look like scheduled eating then it'd go back to you know so it's it was very very haphazard so the act of being told to kind of set alarms for eating it almost sounds so crazily simplistic but that that really really helped that was kind of the big first step that everyone had to kind of really really try and go through and probably one of the best things I learned though there was a lot of things that I already kind of knew a little bit about talking about meditation CBT little strategies but I have to say yeah the the act of going talking talking every week about it and the scheduled eating were the three biggest kind of takeaways I think it's so interesting you say that isn't it that sometimes we think of a kind of a specialist intervention being about the clinical bit of intervention but actually there's a lot about the model the going yeah. somewhere the feeling safe and contained the stable base that's often provided in a clinical group or therapy hearing other people seeing other people these are people that experience what I do that can often be incredibly helpful for people yes. so yeah. you mentioned earlier on as well as well as noticing difficulties in your eating that we were talking about the the, the observations in terms of what we call your cognitive profile oh, right, so some yes, of the issues yeah. around concentration memory and, and attention in your journey to kind of find out a little bit more about yourself and your journey through adversity at what point did you find out about ADHD yeah so it's it's a funny one I'd been through yes so I'd been through the NHS for, for various things I don't know what was it it must be two years ago now I wanted to pursue Basically, I wanted a formal diagnosis because I'd never sat down in front of anyone and found out what was really going on with me. And I think being told anxiety and depression for a long time and then obviously having the official eating diagnosis, but that was very specific. I kind of just had that feeling of like, what what else is going on with me? Like, (laughs) And really what I was pursuing was to find out more of the specifics about my anxiety, I think. And I also wondered if there was some element of bipolar as well with my mood swings. But like a lot of people, I think, I had got so wrapped up in reading online about what might be up with me. I got really just focused on it, almost obsessed with it and just could not, can't think of a better way of like, what, what's the phrase? Could not see the wood for the trees. Like yes, I, yeah. I, I just, I was so... Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes people say, you know, the kind of Google rabbit hole. Yes. <laughs> you know, yeah. the, or the, the, the kind of safari rabbit hole. Yeah, exactly. But and but but I think what it was was that, you know, I was reading about anxiety and depression. I was thinking, this doesn't this doesn't gel with me. And and especially everything I said at the start, you know, with that real intensity, this one minute, that the next. Yes. Um, yeah. And I also wasn't sure if what I was dealing with was social anxiety. And I just, I, I was just all confused. <laughs> and I'll just really briefly, like, um, I had a very ADHD thing. I'd had a lot of problems with money. I'd been in a lot of debt. 
And suddenly I had a little bit of money. I was out of debt. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to get a private psychiatric assessment to find out what is going on. And yeah, I was just really expecting to go in and find out, as I say, more about anxiety or possibly bipolar. I wasn't sure at this point. I was just so like, just tell me what's going on. And that's when I was told to pursue. Um, well, but basically the psychiatrist said, yeah, there's some there's some neurodivergence here. So, you know, you, you need to go on and have an ADHD assessment. And that was really the first time I'd ever kind of heard about it. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I must admit now, looking back, I had read something about someone talking about ADHD and, and feeling like some of the symptoms might be me, but I'd really brushed it off because like I'm finding now, I had really, you know, when I tell people now, they're like, what? Because there's just that idea of what ADHD is, right? Like everyone yes. says it, but that idea of like hyperactive little boy often, like everyone thinks of kind of the male experience, can't focus at school, uh, causes a lot of trouble maybe and that's it and even though I, may- I maybe had seen things about it before I'd just never taken it seriously so it was a funny experience actually because well ov- okay obviously I then went on to have an ADHD assessment and yeah had found out I had combined type so inattentive and hyperactive and it was a weird experience because I did not go in expecting any of it <laughs> and I know you know I, I know a few people now actually who are pursuing the diagnosis and um and don't get me wrong if, if they find out either way I'm sure it's going to affect their life hugely but I think I had a bit of kind of shock as well <laughs> when I when I found out because it was like oh I'm going to be told this is general anxiety rather than social anxiety or something like that so yeah it's been a weird time and like I said I think it's been two years or 18 months maybe and I'm still kind of processing it I've got to admit so much about what you just said there is, is, is struck me in terms of that many people might have been told you have this or mm. what you're experiencing is this. They may be told that in a clinical capacity by a professional or for themselves, they may feel that they fit into a, a yes. certain category in terms of what they're experiencing. And, and it's not surprising that we will need a period of adjustment when perhaps something yeah. different is suggested or implied yeah. and, and kind of giving yourself the space and the time to be able to process that yeah. and you're obviously still in those early stages of doing that and I guess one of the things we were talking weren't we about that you may come on a podcast again at a later date because there's so much that we can talk about but in terms of when we look at the adversity you've had in your life the later diagnosis having you know to carry around these kind of constructs of what you are and then to have that destabilized and changed mm. by a, a different diagnosis a different construct is how has that impacted you as a person and you as a writer and what have you found that might have been useful about learning more about yourselves has there been anything that's been more of a barrier yeah so acceptance trying to learn that acceptance has been huge I I saw someone else talk about it somewhere and they were saying that sometimes the process of like finding a diagnosis you weren't expecting is like the grieving process so you're like literally yeah and I and I found that a bit dramatic at first and then I was like yeah it kind of is because you're you're kind of grieving for a person that you're not like so there is something quite sad about that so so yeah there has been various different stages and I think really only now am I at the stage where I'm really actively learning more taking steps talking to people around me about it because I have been very (laughs) I don't know classic me I have been going from kind of wow this is great to completely in denial (laughs) it's allowing yourself to be in the moment and experiencing what you're experiencing you know the brain is a powerful and fascinating 
thing yes. isn't it? in terms of yeah. the kind of thoughts it can send us and the intensity the frequency of them and then yeah. suddenly randomly sending us something else yeah. is there anything that's helped you with processing this is there anything about having those diagnoses that's been useful as well I've touched on it a bit but yeah just 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 realizing how elements of it have helped my job and I kind of said before about you know hearing someone say about ADHD not being a deficit but being dysregulation yeah yeah, yeah and realizing that okay it's actually th- there's actually nothing here about me not being able to pay attention that's not that's not it but there are certain things I can pay attention to more than others and and that's why you know I, I count myself so lucky that I'm in a career where I'm so interested in it and I can pay attention to it you know not every day like obviously there are times when I'm struggle to write or I think I said it earlier but the core of what I do really interests me and excites me and I can I can I can I can focus on it a lot especially if like I said before with writing the book especially if I've got one thing to focus on I love that I love getting up in the morning and thinking that's it that's my one thing because then I'll go for a walk and I'll be constructing sentences and thinking of kind of analogies and things to better explain it. Unfortunately, that can't be my job every day. I do have lots of kind of plates spinning as a freelancer, which I, I have to have until I hopefully, fingers crossed, write another book. Um, I have noticed that. So it's almost like pushing myself towards opportunities where I can get really involved with the project for yes. maybe yeah. three weeks really intensely, which is what I'm actually doing other little bits and pieces but I'm actually able to do that at the moment which which has been great really really good so that's definitely helped and then just you know what getting a getting a kind of late in life diagnosis has made me realize how many things I do instinctively to manage myself (laughs) yeah 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 and and I'm not saying I'm not saying I've done things perfectly but it's kind of like leaning into those things and realizing right okay so you know for, for an example I work out every day and that's something that I have to be careful with as someone in eating disorder recovery. But I know now that it's very important for me. It just makes me feel more centered. I have so much energy and it helps me kind of burn that off in a way that is that is good. So, Finding the things that fit you. Yeah. But also, you know, it sounds like you're also able to make room for other valued things mm. outside of those diagnoses, outside of work even though work is of value to you. Yeah. But just finding, I guess, I, I talk quite a lot in my clinical work about, you know, what is our well-being baseline? So what are those things that help yeah. us cope with things like adversity, mm. with stress, with transition, with the pandemic suddenly coming and having to reinvent the way that we live our lives overnight? Yeah. If we were to think about, I always ask my guests towards the end, is yeah. there one little golden nugget, one little adversity takeaway that our listeners could have? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. I'm going to try and condense it because there's a little bit of a story behind it. I remember an eating disorder in the group. We were told to expect lapses and to possibly even expect kind of a relapse. And we went into a lot of detail about what that would look like. And I think that's really odd to hear. I think, and I was thinking about it actually, that I think a lot of it has to do with the way we all perceive time, right? Like we often talk of kind of like the start and the end. I know I talk all the time about kind of journeys, journeys of recovery, things like that. But really, I kind of, I'm not sure how helpful that is. I think we do it because our time moves forward for us. That's that's how how we think of it. I think when it comes to recovery and mental health generally, so not just kind of eating disorder, this idea that we're always moving forward and if something happens, it's worth a step back or a pause when really I don't think that that's what it is I think we expect 
we should expect things to sometimes go wrong. And I think it's, I'm not sure if you've heard of her, but she she does a fantastic kind of medita- meditation teacher called Tara Brat. I remember she did kind of, it was when I was just getting into meditation and I was trying to do it perfectly, you know, like sit there and have no thoughts, right? Which I think a yes. lot of people do at the yep. start. And I remember her saying, the practice of meditation isn't to have no thoughts. The practice of meditation is you will get distracted. You will think about anything else. And the practice is you coming back to the moment. And I think she, she's she got the most incredible voice and way of speaking. So she must have put that in such a more beautiful way than I just did. But I remember that really, really, really struck me, not only in helping me like add meditation into my day in a way that actually felt like it was it was helpful, but in kind of understanding that, that what, what I was saying about kind of time and recovery that, you know, th- there is no perfect way of doing ev- anything. You're not just going to go on a kind of straight trajectory. Maybe some people will, and that's great, but the more we can expect lapses in any kind of sense of the word, then I think the more we're kind of accepting and we'll move forward without that kind of guilt and shame, which we've spoken about so much, yeah. That is possibly the best (laughs) nugget I've heard you know that you know just kind of going with the flow that life will throw some things that yeah set back yeah part of that too Becca Caddy thank you so much if people would like to find out more about you where can they find you and where can they find your book yeah so um in most places I'm just Becca Caddy so b-e-c-c-a-c-a-d-d-y so that's twitter um instagram bunch of places it's my website as well beccacaddy.com yeah you should find my book in most places I think these days still so it's called screen time yeah and people would have a look it's I think it's on my social media as well right. yeah yeah, yeah, <laughs> From yeah. when I, I did an article and I shared I think I shared your book didn't I because I just read it and thought this needs to be out there it was just yeah again a bit like your adversity takeaway at the end they're just really easy digestible pieces Mm. of information to help us thank you so much I'm sure I will have you on again because we could probably do several episodes I'm sure thank you so much (laughs) hopefully people will find that they will notice some setbacks in life and that that's okay we know we will manage we will manage thank you so much Becca thank you bye Thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Psychologist podcast. It's so lovely to have you here. I'm Dr. Tara Quintrarillo and you can find me at drtara.co.uk. You'll see everything I'm up to, free resources, my media work and my new COVID recovery clinic as well. Remember to please rate and review my podcast. It really helps people to benefit from the narratives of overcoming adversity if they know where to find us. The Adversity Psychologist podcast helping you one step at a time.